Hey, movie fans. This is Real Old Reels again with Robin. And Lisa. Lisa and I are sisters that grew up watching old films, and now we're working on creating a community for people who love classic cinema as well, or maybe you want to, but don't know where to start. Keep listening to us, and we'll definitely point out some great ones that you and your family and friends will enjoy. If you listened to us last week, I hope that you got a chance to watch Strangers on a Train and enjoyed it, and kept your eye out for all those little Easter eggs that we we pointed out in our last show. It was pretty fun. I love this film so much because it has so many people involved in it. I love their work. It's got Frank Capra as the director. And if you guys know anything about old cinema, I guarantee that you've seen a Frank Capra movie. <laughs> and it has mm-hmm. Jim Stewart, who everybody, just about everybody knows who he is. And Gene Arthur, another uh, hilarious leading lady. And Lionel Barrymore, the great uncle of Drew Barrymore, who is... Also an amazing actor. So what's the movie, Lisa? Um, it's You Can't Take It With You. It's one of his, it's one of Frank Capra's lesser known films, I would say. Frank Capra also did It's a Wonderful Life, which even if you haven't seen it, you've definitely heard of it. You Can't Take It With You actually won an Oscar, which is interesting because it's just, it's just not as well known. I don't think even people who have seen a lot of old movies may not have seen it. But it's definitely a good one. It's a screwball comedy. There are some very cool trivia about trivia bits about it that we'll get into. And I want to talk about our favorite scenes, our favorite actor in the movie, and all that good stuff. But let's start out with, um, I'll tell you a little bit about the plot first. And then Lisa, you can get into the trivia. Okay. So You Can't Take It With You is a comedy that is a story of two different families, very different families with starkly contrasting values. On one hand, you have the Kirbys, their cold-hearted bankers from Wall Street, and they're dead set on evicting an entire block of small businesses and homes to make way for a factory that will completely dominate their competition. But there's just this one troublesome family that lives on that block that just can't be bought, no matter how far over the market value the Kirby's business associates offer them. Enter Martin Vanderhoff, the endearing and stubbornly idealistic patriarch of the family who believes that enjoyment of one's life and the people you love are what matter most. And everyone under his roof lives life to the fullest, regardless of how inept they are at their pursuits. <laughs> <laughs> somehow they get by. I had, they don't really explain how, but somehow they get by with one just trying to be an author. She's always a typewriter. Another dances horribly. <laughs> Another sells fireworks, which I guess do okay on the 4th of July. And not to mention that there are just some folks that meet the family and never leave. They just end up being mm-hmm. permanent residents that believe in being lilies of the valley this is unfathomable to the Kirby's worldview where social status and money reign over all. Their lives become intertwined in a second way when Martin's granddaughter, Alice, the only one that seems with a steady job, falls for the Kirby's promising young son, Tony, who is the vice president at their company. Tony is charmed by Alice's family and thinks his parents will be too, but of course, That's when things really clash between the two old men and things fall apart for them. But at the end, 
in a very happy and beautiful way. We all come away from the film knowing that the best things in life are free and life is too short to spend working at a soulless corporation and you can't take it with you. Ma'am, you're crazy. Well, maybe I am. <laughs> I used to be just like you. And then one morning when I was going up in the elevator, it struck me I wasn't having any fun. So I came right down and I never went back. So, Lisa, let's hear about some of the background. How did this movie even get made? Who made it? And where did it come from? Um, well, first of all, I thought the funniest thing about this since we talked about last week how strangers on a train was bought for such a low price of seven thousand dollars this one was bought for two hundred thousand dollars which in today's terms was over three million dollars because it was a well-known um play at the time and obviously frank capra knew its value and didn't undercut (laughs) the value of it like hitchcock had that's such a huge difference. 200000 to $7,000. Yeah. That's yeah. awful. It, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. But, I mean, it speaks to how successful the play was at the time as well. It was more well-known. There were also a couple different little tidbits. Um, Anne Miller, the, the woman who plays Essie, She's actually a girl. She's not a woman. She's 15 years old and she's playing a married woman in the film. She does not look 15 at all. And she plays her role really well. One of the reasons is because she is a professional dancer, but she is actually trying to dance terribly in the film. She is a professional dancer, but she doesn't know how to how to dance ballet and especially use point shoes. And so throughout the duration of the film, she would actually cry between takes and in her dressing room, she would cry, but never tell anyone why. Because she was in so much pain. Yeah, because she was in so much pain from the point shoes. And she never told anybody why, but Jimmy Stewart took notice of it and would send her her chocolates all the time because he didn't know why she was upset, but he just wanted her to feel better. And which is really sweet. That's very sweet. (laughs) See, I love hearing good things about people who seem like good people in their characters. And actually, it's funny that comes up because Jimmy Stewart was often regarded by Frank Capra as just not a great performer. He says he's not a great performer. He just is a good guy. So he can (laughs) show how good he is on camera because he is just he acts naturally he acts like himself oh well that's (laughs) i'd say that's a a little backhanded compliment (laughs) uh he didn't mean it as a compliment but um yeah he was meaning he's authentic (laughs) right right (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how jimmy stewart took that and did you did you say that you knew something about the se character um, the Broadway version. Oh, another thing about Essie is the character Essie, who is the goofy dancer. Usually that character is played by a professional dancer who is purposely trying to look terrible, which is a really fun thing about her character. And on Broadway, there was a particular uh, dancer, Annalie Ashford, who did such a good job dancing horribly that she won the Fred Astaire award 
<laughs> for great dancing. <laughs> so I don't know how that worked, but she won an, a, a dancing award for being a horrible dancer. <laughs> I wonder if she was super proud of that or was like, I wish that I had gotten that for one of my really awesome performances. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of backhanded compliments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another another interesting thing about this film is that Lionel Barrymore was starting to develop arthritis and having more and more of a difficult time getting around. And so he suggested that they have him work in a leg injury into the film so that he could be on crutches or sitting down for the duration of the film since getting around was really hard for him. And what is the story that they gave him? The story... Not, it wasn't arthritis. It was an injury from what? Oh, it was an injury from him uh, sliding down the stairs, oh, which comes back funny. later. <laughs> is, and it's really funny. And it's really sad to think that he was in so much pain in real life. And then he plays, as you, were, as you know, he plays Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. And he's being wheeled around in a wheelchair, which means he's legitimately not able to walk very well at that point. Right. Right. It's surprising that he continued to act after being in so much pain all the time. Right. And he was a great actor. I mean, the stark contrast between the two characters. Now, Mr. Vanderhoff, that's a very serious thing, not filing an income tax return. Now, suppose I do pay you this money. Mind you, I don't say that I'm going to, but just for the sake of argument. What's the government going to do with it? What do you mean? Well, what do I get for my money? I wouldn't mind paying for something sensible. Something sensible. What about Congress and the Supreme Court and the President? We got to pay them, don't we? Not with my money, no, sir. Yeah, I, I honestly didn't even know that he, it was the same, same actor that played both parts until just recently, which is <laughs> kind yes. of embarrassing. But he just did such a great job at both parts. Yeah, I didn't even put them together. Yes, his character is the grandfather, and you can't take it with you. He's like this warm, very friendly, very loving, adorable. He talks about his deceased wife in the sweetest way. He just seems so grandfatherly. And of course, if you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, Mr. Potter, it's completely opposite, cold-hearted. And he's one of the, I, I thought about this earlier, he's one of the, christmas villains that does not have a redeeming character arc he just stays bad yeah (laughs) so if you love to hate on christmas he really should be your hero not the grinch or ebenezer scrooge it's mr potter really (laughs) frank capra films this is definitely one of those heartwarming movies that he's done and but he is known for doing a lot of warm fuzzy movies in fact they're was a time where they just dubbed his movies as Capricorn, as in corny films. <laughs> I want to just tell you some background about Frank Capra because he is actually super interesting. He came across the Atlantic on a boat from Italy when he was six years old, and he actually remembers how horrible the conditions were on board. Everyone was sick all the time. All the kids were crying. It was awful. His parents were very poor immigrants from Italy, as I mentioned, and they moved to California and they were very firmly working class people to the point where even though 
Frank Capra did really well in school, wanted to go to school, had teachers encouraging him. They kept pressuring him, go get a job, go get a, go get a work in some fields, work with a hammer, work with a saw, work with a hoe. In fact, his mom said, unless you work, you're a bum. And if you're drunk, you're a bum. If you gamble, you're a bum. And even when he took her to see his film, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is a big movie. By that time, he's famous. After the movie's over and everyone's like, oh, what a great film. She turns to him and says, when are you going to get a job? (laughs) (laughs) But he persisted even in his young years to work really hard in school. And he went to what is now Caltech and, and, and was going to be an engineer and somewhat regrets a little bit of not pursuing that more. Although he's probably very, he was very satisfied with the work he did in the arts. His early movies didn't do great. He had a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs in his early career But the 1930s is when he really shined and all of his famous movies were made in the 1930s. But it's funny that the movies before then, do you know why they weren't successful? I'll tell you. Was it about the economy? Well, they were too depressing. Oh. (laughs) They were too dark and depressing. And so the 1930s, it's like he did a complete switch and did all these um, things that- Heartwarming films. (laughs) Heartwarming, happy endings. So he really leaned into that. It's not that he didn't really believe in his idealism. He actually firmly defended the American dream because he lived it. He was a beneficiary of it. I think he really combines his idealism and maybe his corniness and maybe his darker stuff that had to do with things like depression, suicide, and disease and really combined them, those two sides of himself. And it's a wonderful life because it's a wonderful life. That's also very serious. Yeah. Yeah. All about redemption. Right. But here's what I thought was really cool about him. There's a period of time in uh, in film history where when they started filming movies, it was a lot like filming a play. You filmed people coming into the scene. You filmed people going out of the scene. There was a crossfade between scenes and one actor would talk. Then another would actor would talk. It was very much like a play, Right. Well, mm-hmm. he noticed that the audience in a movie would get kind of lost with all of that. So he trimmed all of that. Instead, he had people pop into scenes. He'd have people talking over each other at different points. And he wouldn't film people entering and exiting and like just and scenes were a lot more choppy. And mm. for directors during that time, it was so unnatural because it wasn't like a play. It was like, where are people coming from and stuff? But the audience were like, this is so much more natural. And so basically he invented modern pacing of filming in a, in a lot of ways. Wow. He uh, contributed to modern pacing. Oh, but we have him to thank. Yeah. He had a great. Even though his movies are pretty long winded sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, he had a great sense for the, the audience's interaction with movies. And, but, you know, he still, I think there was a learning curve for him in some ways. I think some of his later stuff is a little bit better paced than his earlier stuff, but that was just how movies were made. Another thing that he did was really clever for the time is he organized shots by how long they were. So other directors would be would set up the cameras for a long shot and then they move them for a short shot or a medium shot. 
So they would be continually moving the cameras to different angles and the lighting, everything would have to change for every shot. But he organized it in a way that was like, okay, we're going to do all of our long shots today, all of our medium shots the next day, or then are all of our short shots or however. It was easier to, it just saved on time. He almost got fired for that because people didn't like, well, his bosses didn't understand. It was almost like chaos for them. So, yeah. but he, they didn't realize that he was actually saving them money because all that time moving equipment was chopped out. So he was pretty clever and knew what he was doing. Yeah. Let's move on to some of our favorite scenes. I, I kind of have more favorite moments than scenes. But I mm. want to hear about why don't you start and tell us about what your favorite scenes are? Okay. Um, I'll start with when Tony, Jimmy Stewart's character, proposes to Alice. I just thought it was such an interesting scene because he kind of shows his character as being this rich boy who kind of gets whatever he wants. He doesn't even really ask her when he's proposing her. He just kind of tells her that, oh, I'm going to marry you. He does it in a really charming way, so it's not infuriating when you watch it. Now, look, Phantom. Last night, I informed that irate lady that was just in your office a minute ago that I was going to marry you. I don't remember you telling it to me. No, you didn't ask me. That's right, I didn't. No, she did. I talked about you so much that she finally said, well, now the next thing I expect to hear from you is that you're going to marry the girl. And I said, yeah, that's it exactly. But still, a rich boy who has always gotten what he wants. And he even talks about that in the scene, is that when he grew up, he just would scream as loud as he could, and his parents would just give him whatever he wanted. And so <laughs> it just really sets up the character for what kind of person he is. He just has never had anything denied him and is always able to get whatever he wants. But that changes throughout the the film as we see. Yeah. He does have a bit of character development in that way, but it's true. He's sort of naive. He, I think he thinks that poor people are kind of quaint, like, Oh, isn't that sweet that you have so much freedom and you don't care about money or society. Whereas he doesn't, on the other hand, he doesn't realize the benefits or appreciate the benefits he has from his society and money. Right. And he doesn't even really understand how naive he is because he assumes that his parents will find it all charming as well. Because he, whenever he makes a joke or whenever he says something, his parents are just laughing or applauding, just love, whatever, just eat it all up. And so he assumes that because Anne's family is charming in their quaint little way, he assumes that they're going to, they're just going to fall in love with them as well once they meet them, which is not the case. Yes. Alice's family. Yeah. I I love their relationship too. But yes, my one of my favorite moments is when he's holding her hands while they're kind of flirting, chatting or whatever. And the phone rings and she wants to do her job, you know, keep her job and do and answer the phone. But <laughs> he's like, nope, you're, I'm going to hold your hands. And so she... When in, in good humor decides to answer the phone with her teeth <laughs> and then <laughs> not use her hands and it's kind of funny and cute but if you think about it and <laughs> from her perspective it's like you're you're not very supportive of where she's coming from she's got to keep her job <laughs> yeah 
but still a very cute scene that shows their relationship. I have another, Oh wait, why don't you continue with your other favorite scenes? Okay. One of my other favorite scenes was the, the drunk tank in the, in the prison or in the jail when the women are separated from the men and (laughs) Mrs. Kirby is just, you can just feel her claustrophobia around um, (laughs) these prostitutes who are just stroking her furs or asking advice from her, like, what was her handle? (laughs) Yeah. And um, so I just, I love that scene for just how, how much you can feel like what she's feeling in that moment. And then of course I love when, when Tony brings his family, the Kirby's over to see the Vanderhoor family and Alice slides down the stairs and everybody, it's just pure chaos in the house. Everyone's doing crazy things. Essie's dancing. Um, Mrs. Or Alice's mom is painting one of the, one of the guys as a, as a discus thrower. And (laughs) Yeah, it's just, they just walk into pure chaos. (laughs) So I have a kid who can't stand confrontational or embarrassing moments in movies and has, so (laughs) when that part played, he had to leave the room because it was (laughs) too much for him. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I remember feeling that way too. Like, oh, so embarrassing. (laughs) And as yeah. thing, I don't think I have a specific moment except for um, with Essie. I just like it anytime she is dancing with Klinkov and her husband is playing the xylophone in the background. It's just crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so ridiculously bad. <laughs> and I love that the family is so supportive of each other, even though everyone's kind of terrible at what they do or not terrible just not successful right and i yeah. think they did kind of make part of the point of the movie was to show that every one of them could actually be making money it wasn't like they were an, unable to they had some really great talent but they weren't very good at capitalizing on it and i think that was because they wanted to show that they were doing it for enjoyment remember essie's character she was really good at making candy and mm, yeah they were like, oh, you should open up a shop. But she's like, nah, I want to dance. And she just is ridiculous at dancing. <laughs> yeah. One scene that I just thought was so bizarre and I couldn't really figure out was like why it was in there at all because it's not part of the play is the part where they go, Alice and Tony go on a date and then little kid gangsters come and want to teach them the Big Apple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they look like little ruffians. It seems like what they're doing, they keep saying it's illegal. And I tried to find something on the Big Apple itself, the dance, and if it was illegal, but I couldn't really find anything. So I'm still confused about that scene, actually. What did you think? (laughs) Yeah, maybe it was just that they weren't supposed to be dancing in the streets. I don't know. (laughs) I did find some videos of people dancing the Big Apple, which it looked super fun. Man, I wish we still had cool dances like that. Or we knew how to do them. And she picked it up really fast. (laughs) Yeah, I wish that too sometimes. But then other times I I think about when I've tried to dance and it hasn't gone super well. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) 
about but I wonder if they put it in the movie because it was just kind of customary at the time to be having like a dance scene in movies and so they're just kind of throwing that in there for the dance scene or it was some sort of transition to the next scene oh which gives me uh, and I, which reminds me of my next favorite moment and that is when she screams in the restaurant and because she's oh yeah to scream and again tony <laughs> completely covers for her by saying oh we saw a bunch of rats run across all this restaurant what happened what happened what happened well a mouse went mouse? right past there a mouse in this place a mouse what do you mean a mouse there's a rat that long with hair on it a rat with hair on yeah, it yeah about six of them weren't there six or seven of them where 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 where? Right under that table. Oh, there they go. So Jean Arthur is one of my favorite actresses from this time period because she's just this pint-sized, gorgeous comedian and with such great timing, and she just seems so authentic as she's acting. But... If you don't know much about her, she's got a really interesting background, too. I'll just throw some facts out there really quick about her. Apparently, she was really, really shy and would get violently ill before performing, before acting. Oh. Yeah. Frank Capra would say she didn't have butterflies. She had wasps. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow she was able to pull herself together before takes and just act like nothing was wrong. So kind of Such a weird profession to get into. <laughs> Right. Well I, think, yeah. well, I think she obviously wanted to. She started out loving it. And then as time came, went on, she really hated it. She loved to act, but she hated the press. She hated the publicity of it. She was oh. a person. And actually, when her contract ended, she ran through the street saying, I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> so she really hated the forced publicity she often was ha- having to endure and talking about herself. She was super popular and her career spanned both silent movies and talkies. And oh, wow. Yeah. Her career didn't really take off until the talkies because of her unique voice. And that's when right. she became really popular. And I didn't know this. I mean, I've seen her in lots of things, but she is in a lot of movies and was very popular. She is beautiful, but she's not she's not the typical blonde seductress that you might expect in these older films yeah and she has a very unusual voice yes it's kind of like froggy squeaky voice (laughs) yeah at the beginning of the movie she is someone who wants to be a little bit more conventional she has a regular job and she's maybe a little embarrassed of her family although she loves her family she's a little embarrassed of them but towards the end she starts defending them and becomes much more aware of how special they are and appreciative of the individuals in her quirky family so in my opinion i think she's probably wins the actor award for this movie for me she's my favorite yeah she definitely does a transformation throughout the movie you kind of feel a little bit sorry for tony because she came to this realization that her family is something to be proud of kind of without him and so i think she she treats him a little harshly towards the end when he's just kind of following her lead as she's going along. Right. <laughs> Almost like he's um, 
like he was almost more proud of her family than she was at one point. And then all of a sudden she's angry with him because he's backing not sticking up for her, (laughs) not sticking up for her. So it's it's all understandable is isn't you know one of those typical romantic comedy misunderstandings but yeah you do kind of feel bad for tony because he's just like just trying to figure her out most of the time right as far as the movie overall it is heartwarming it's sweet it's funny it's not gonna be the same kind of comedy that you would see today it's not gonna make you laugh out loud but it will definitely make you smile yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a movie that you might not pick it up every Christmas like you do. It's a wonderful life, but it's good for, for watching and being becoming familiar with at least once. Yeah, if you only know Frank Capra as the director of It's a Wonderful Life, then it's a great one to branch out. Or if you want to see something with Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur, and it's, not, it's a great one. One sad thing about this movie is that Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur in real life didn't really get along all that much. And that's kind of disappointing. But (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know if they fought, but they just weren't buds at all. I've kind of heard that about a lot of Jimmy Stewart's leading ladies that he hasn't gotten along with a lot of them, Hmm. which is interesting because he's he from all accounts seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to unpack that sometime. So definitely. So if you are interested in Frank Capra movies, watch. You can't take it with you. If you're wondering what to watch after this, um, this one just made me think of romantic comedies in general. Like you've got Mail and Sleepless in Seattle. Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are kind of like a modern day Gene Arthur and uh, Jimmy Stewart pairing. Like they're yeah, cute and quirky and little and. He's kind of like an everyman. So with a very distinctive voice. Right. Watch more romantic comedies that are favorites from the from the past or more recent decades. Let's tease our next film that's coming up next week. Yeah, it's a totally different genre than what we have watched the last two weeks. And it's kind of quirky, a little campy. It's got Everything from painted backgrounds to tigers. (laughs) It'll be a lot of fun. Well, we hope you get a chance to watch You Can't Take It With You. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.